The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. I hope that you have not, nor that you will ever grow tired of praying together. As we, as we think about what, what we do here in this room, I pray that you recognize that it's not a thing called worship when Haley sings and then it's a thing called preaching when I get up and then it's a thing called praying whenever I ask you to close your eyes. I pray that you recognize that the whole of this is worship. So let's worship God together through prayer. One more time, shall we? Father, we are in and of ourselves, utterly incapable of doing what needs to happen next. Understanding and seeing and living in light of your word. So we're asking you, Father, by the power of your spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe what you have said. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I also pray you've not grown tired of standing because one more time I ask you to stand to your feet. I told you there might be some awkwardness as we find our footing here and the up-down might be part of it. We continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 beginning in verse 15. This is the Holy Inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So, as those of you who've been with us will recall, God has uh, God has spoken through this man called Paul to express to us certain desires that he has, based on his assurance that they're believers. He says, having. Heard of your faith in the Lord Christ Jesus and your love towards all the saints, your faith working itself out in works because of this, because of my confidence that you are followers of Christ. I've gone to God on your behalf and I've asked for these specific things. And I told you whenever we first began to consider together this prayer, what an incredible blessing it is to have these spirit inspired prayers at our fingertips teaching us how not just how we ought to pray for one another, but how we should pray for ourselves. What sort of things should we desire from God? What, what sort of things should mark our prayer life? And of course, you sense in this Paul's spirit of thanksgiving and, and, and gratitude. But in terms of the supplications and, and the requests, the petitions that he makes of God, he begins firstly with one that's fairly broad. I pray that you would grow in the knowledge of God. This is an, an intimacy. I, I pray that you would know God more deeply and more fully. I told you when we considered that particular request that while that is a, a request, that is a, a, a plea that we should all bring before God, you've got to be very careful about making it because you must know that experiential knowledge like this, coming to really know God like this, it brings with it suffering and, and pain and, and challenge. Those are the places, it seems, when we see God and, and know him 
most fully. And, and so I asked you two weeks ago, I would ask you again today. Now, 14 days later, I would ask you, has this begun to season your prayer life? Did you just hear the words here in the room and it thought, that's nice. Yeah, that's good. I'm supposed to want to know God more. And I, my ultimate plea for my children should be that they know God more. And did it just stay here? Or did you actually pray in this way? Did, did you find your heart longing to know God more? And I'm not talking about success. I'm not asking you to check a box and say, yes, I know God more today. I'm just talking about your desires. What did you long for? What, what consumed your thoughts? What, what, what did the man say? What do you think about when you've got nothing to think about? Did it go to your job or to your recreation or to your money? Or did it go to God? And, but then Paul moved. That, that was a more broad petition. Then he moved to two, actually to, to three very specific petitions. And the first was that we may know. He begins each of them with, that we may know what is. We may know what is the hope to which he has called us. It's as though Paul is pointing back. He's telling us to remember a, a thing that God has done as he called us out of darkness and into marvelous light, as he called us to his own glory and majesty, as he's, as he's called us to himself and as he points us forward. So he's, he's telling us, look backwards to the thing that God has done in your life and then look forward to this hope and, and the way that he speaks about hope the way the bible uses the word hope it's nothing like the way we use hope it's it's not a thing that's ever in doubt or ever in question or ever to be worried that it that it might be lost hope is an assurance is a it's a it's an anchor for our soul is is the way the scripture talks about this thing it's it's kept for us safe and secure in the very throne room of heaven that no one, not you, not I, not Satan and his demons could ever snatch away this hope. It's a glorious inheritance. It's the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints because God is not stingy. God doesn't give just a little bit to tide you over. He, he gives you more than you could ever ask for. There's a superabundance to this hope and this grace. And this inheritance. And so he's telling us to look backwards to this thing that God has done as he, as he called us from life to death and from darkness to light and to look forward with great assurance to this hope. And it's almost like he's telling us to peek into the promised land, to see everything that's yours as joint heirs with Christ Jesus. That is the man in Hebrews says that we're to greet it from afar. And, and I I use the analogy of you see someone you love that you can't wait to get to them and you see them coming down the street or you, you see them getting off the plane or even you just get news that, that they're coming at the end of the week and your heart is just bursting with joy, almost as if you're already holding them in your hands, that this is meant to be the mark of the Christian life. N knowing that when you're able to do this, the whole of your life then will be marked with joy. You realize Beloved, that's a command from God. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Do you know what that means? What's it called when God tells you to do something and you don't do it? Sin. He's calling us to rejoice. I can't just make myself happy. He's not talking about the stupid, empty smile, the, 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 the meaningless grin that, that some people try to walk around with. It, it's, it's not, as I compared it last week, I think some people, they view the Christian life as nothing more than learning to pretend to love the things that you hate. I'm just going to learn to be a good little soldier, a good little boy and girl. I'm going to do all the things that God commands, but I'm going to assume we're all in on the joke, right? We all hate this. It stinks. But some of us are just better at pretending like we enjoy it and pretending like we like it. And really, it's just for the kids, right? I mean, I want Savannah to think that I actually love this stuff. And so I act like I'm excited and maybe I can trick her enough into thinking there's joy. No, he says there's joy here. But this joy comes as 
We see this hope and we see this inheritance and we look forward to a greater country and real rewards in eternity with Christ. But what Paul's saying here is you can't do it. You can't even see it. Much less long for it unless the eyes of your heart are enlightened. That's the thing that only the spirit of God can do can bring you to see this and bring you to desire it and and to want it. But beloved, I I submit to you that Christians should be the happiest people in all the world. Now, oftentimes, that happiness and that joy will be marked with profound suffering and sorrow. Again, I say we're not a bunch of stupid people pretending like things that hurt don't hurt. You don't honor God in that, but I'll tell you where you do honor God is when you're able to worship even in the middle of the suffering. You're able to say to the world, he's worth so much more than whatever I'm losing in this moment. But Paul wasn't done there. He didn't just wish that we would know what is the hope to which he has called us. He isn't just saying that he hoped that we would know what are his glorious inheritance among the saints, but he goes beyond this to make one more petition. He says it, verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. Paul wants our eyes fixed on something very specific here, the power of God. Whenever we consider who God is, whenever we consider the attributes of God, you remember us doing that 18 months. We sat here and we considered the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God on Wednesday night. And always, if we were to just make a list, always near the top of who is God? What is God like? What is in God's nature? Almost everybody's list somewhere near the top would be something about his power. He is the Lord God Almighty. Psalm 95 says, for the Lord is a mighty God. Psalm 62, 11, Once God has spoken, twice I heard this, that power belongs to God. Psalm 147, 5, Great is the Lord and abundant in power. He is the Lord God Almighty. But you people of all people recognize that what I'm saying here is not just He's more mighty and powerful than you. I'm not just saying he's the most powerful being in all the universe. I'm saying that there is no end to his power. The omnipotence of God, inexhaustible power of God. We're not just talking about a lot of this stuff. We're talking about that which can never, ever, ever be diminished. That's why he says the immeasurable power of God. Of his greatness. It's immeasurable. It can't be measured. How's that for some fancy linguistics? Immeasurable. Hyperbolo is the word in Greek. Balo means to throw and hyper means beyond. It's thrown further than you could ever reach. You can't get to the end of the power of God. Because there is no end. Whenever I explain this to the little boys in RAs on Sunday nights, I I talk to them about it because every little boy knows about video games. And you you, you know how if you ever get a a cheat code for your video games, if if you're wondering, it's up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, select, start is the cheat code to every good video game. And you put that in and then you've got endless lives and endless power and you run through the level and you get zapped and the power bar goes down for a minute, but then it comes right back up. That's not how it happens with God. Do you understand that God never grunts? God never sweats. God never strains. This is what it means to be the all-powerful, inexhaustibly powerful, infinitely powerful God. Beyond all comprehension, the immeasurable greatness of his power. And there's very practical applications to this. We're we're not just talking about something that's cool to know. It it is mind boggling. And I would invite you, if you don't don't do this, 
As you're, as you're seeking to know God and as you're, you train your mind, and it takes training, dear children, it, it takes training when you have nothing to think about to draw your mind back to Him. Because you've got an enemy that doesn't want you to think about him and you've got flesh that doesn't want to think about him and you've got sin that might be exposed if you think about him. But as you train yourself to think about him in those quiet moments, there is tremendous value in just thinking about what does it mean to to be infinite? You remember when you were a little boy or a little girl and you'd learn the word infinite? You started using it, right? I am infinite strong and you're infinite stupid and I'm going to have infinite money when I, when I grow up. But we don't, we don't understand infinite. Not, not really, at least. But this is more than just contemplating the awesomeness of God. I use that word too often, I've been told. I talk about awesome. People text me, how's your day? It's awesome. There's only one thing that's awesome. That is God. It's Strikes all in any who right, rightly see him. But it's more than this. There's a practical application for this. What did Jeremiah say? Jeremiah 32, 17. Our Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. There is, there is nothing that God desires to do that he can't do. There's, there's nothing that God desires to do in not, not just his infinite power, but his infinite wisdom and knowledge and presence. But there's nothing that God desires to do that he can't do. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Verse 11 Here in chapter one of Ephesians, that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's never a time when God's in heaven thinking, you know, I'd love to do this thing, but my resources are limited or I just can't figure out how to do it. Or the people just won't play nicely. He does as he pleases in all things. Now, if I'm being I mean, perfectly careful with my words. There are some things God can't do. He can't do things that are contrary to his nature. He can't change. He can't lie. He can't do evil or tempt men to evil. But outside of his own nature and who he is, there's no restricting force when it comes to the power and the plans and the purposes and the provision and any other peas, Brian, of God. Job 42, 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. How many times do you see men in the Bible learning this to be true? Think about Jonah. He gave everything he had to resist God. He enlisted other trained men, these other sailors that were on the ship along with him. We're going to do everything we can to resist the plans of God. And finally, you recognize you can't be thwarted. Your plans can't be upended. Because he is a God whose power is immeasurable in its greatness. But there's good news here. You see, there's there's good news in what Paul's praying here because he's talking about the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. You see, this immeasurable greatness of God's power, it also exists towards those who don't believe. And that's terrifying. That this God whose power knows no limit and no end and cannot be measured, that it is against those who don't believe. Those who die in their unbelief, those who die still in their sin, they will find this power turned against them in a place called hell. People often talk about hell as a place where you are eternally separated from God. And that's not bad language. I I don't completely reject that kind of talk scripture points in that vein but you've got to recognize that when it talks about being away from the presence of God it's talking about the blessed presence the gracious and loving presence of God they will be those who are in hell forever they will be in the presence of God and they will wish he would leave they will wish that they could escape because the same power that is being poured out on them in fury and hatred and wrath 
for their sin, that same power will be sustaining them that they might not be annihilated. They would wish for death at that moment. They would wish that it could just no longer exist. They could escape this all-powerful God. But there is no such thing in hell. And so even for the non-believer, they will know something. They will know much of the power of this almighty God. His immeasurable power turned against them in fury. But for the Christian, for those who have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, for those who he loves for the sake of his son, for those whom scripture says he is not ashamed to be our God. That's the that's the promise. You want to know as you study through the, the, the covenant of grace and all the various administrations as God would, would come and, and talk to his people and show them with, with further revelation the way he's going to work out that plan that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15, crushing the head of the serpent and the salvation of his people. Every single time, what does he tell them? You will be my people and I will be your God. And what does that mean other than this power is now for you? It is infinitely for you. Not one ounce turned towards your destruction. Not one ounce turned to do evil towards you. Only, only and eternally for your good. That's what he's talking about here. Now, there's four different words, and I I hope you've got your your Bibles open. There's, There's four different words that God uses that point to this idea that Paul uses that points to this idea of God's power at work within us. The first one here, the word that's just translated as, as power here, it's, it's dynamis. It, it speaks to the innate and, and inherent power of God. When, when, when I talked to you earlier about just contemplating the vastness and the awesomeness and the irresistibility of God, that might be this word here, power, that we're thinking of. It's, it's just his ability to act. It's a, His ability to do whatever he wants. It's ability to sit on his throne in heaven and look down upon Satan and demons and man and storms and sickness and death and everything else and say, I have the power. I have the ability to overcome all of this towards my own plans and purposes. But there have been times in my life when while I I grappled with the ability of God to do whatever he wanted, I wasn't so sure he always put it to use. And so to make sure that we're not camped out there, we see that this power, it's towards us, or if you've got the NIV, it says that it's for us, or if you've got the King James Version, I'm not a big King James guy, but he says that it's to, it's to usward. I, I love that, usward. Can you start using that phrase? That this immeasurable greatness of God's power is to usward. But he, but he says that, that it's towards us, to usward, who believe according to the working. You see the word working there? According to the working of his great might. And working is the word energia. This is, this is power in practice. This is power and ability actually doing something. It's, it's realized power. While, while dynamis may just be potential power, Energy is what happens when that power is flexed. When it, when it finds a target and it's put to work. That, that's what he's talking about here. Power and actual operation. This infinite power of God actually doing and accomplishing something. But he, he's not done there. He says that this superabundant power is towards us according to the working of his great might. You see the word great there. You might be tempted to think that's just an adjective. It's just describing the kind of might. It's a great might. Like it's more than the average might. It's maybe even the most might you've ever seen. It's that kind of might. It's a, it's a super might. A, a great might. But the, the word there is kratos. It's only used 12 times that I could find. 12 times in the New Testament. And it's translated sometimes like this. Great. But we see it translated in this same book, Ephesians 6.10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength. That, that word is translated as strength there. In the strength of his might. In Colossians 1.11, Paul uses it as might. In the might of his might. In Hebrews 2.14, it's just translated as power. 
But, but there's, there's one more way that this word is, is used. It's kratos. There's one more way that you see it used some, with some regularity. Paul uses it in his letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, 16. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Kratos. It's, it's dominion. It's the power to control. It's the power to override. It's the power to overcome. It's the, it's the power to, to exercise that power and authority over any and all resistance. You, 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 excuse me, you've heard of the word theocracy. Theo means, theos means God. And kratos means this. The, the power to overcome and the power to rule and the power to have dominion. A theocracy is when God rules, when God reigns. And so Paul, I think, is drawing our, our minds here. Now, there, there's a d- danger to this, to all of this that I'm trying to do here. Number one danger is just the weakness of my own Greek. But number two is you can over-translate the Bible if you're not careful. You can, like that word dynamis, you've probably heard pastors that take that word and they talk about the gospel as the power of God unto salvation. And that means we're supposed to think about the gospel as dynamite. But that doesn't make any sense because dynamite blows stuff up. Right? So you, you can get too fancy and too cute here and over-translate it. And so I'm, I'm not trying to do this, but I... And there may be some degree to which Paul is just using this language exactly as we see it here. And and, and I'm parsing it out too much, but I I see this. The the power of God, not just the ability to act, but the willingness to act. And that power and action. And not just acting in general, but overcoming any resistance and exercising all dominion and all authority. And then the fourth way he uses it, he kind of returns to this idea of potential power and innate power. When he says the greatness of his might. Iscus is the word there, and it, it does. It just speaks to this strength and power that's inherent within God. And, and so you, you can see almost the overlapping way that Paul just piles up this language. He's not going to allow us to just settle. See, these words, they're used in various combinations. You, if you were to just go do a Google search, or if you had some Bible software, and you were to enter in each one of these words and seek for all the times in the New Testament that they're used together, you'll find them used in various combinations all throughout the letters, but very rarely will you find them all four. I don't know of another time when all four of them are used together. So in typical Pauline style, he is piling up this language upon language upon language, just trying to drive it home. A guy named Harold Herner said that you might be able to translate this sentence that this is the immeasurable power of God towards us who believe according to the power of the power of his power. What is that power cubed? You, you can't comprehend it. But, but, but again, I, I do believe that he's trying to make clear to us this is not just a potential power. This is not just a passive power. This is not just some monster way off there somewhere. This is a nearness to this power. It's toward us. Paul will later talk about this power at work in us. Again, this isn't just a hypothetical exercise. We're not just doing theology here. You understand this? That there's a purpose in this because he's going to get to why this power matters in a moment. But this power is towards you and near you and at work within you. But before we consider any of this, you must recognize that this is all his power. There's a place for the Christian to recognize, and and Paul will call us in other portions of his writing. Paul will call us to labor with the power of God. I will toil and I will stretch and I will work more than anybody else, but not I, but Christ within me. That his power energizes and, and works through my power. And so there's certainly a degree to which God empowers us. He allows us to work, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not at all talking about you doing anything. This is all the power of God. God's work is working and accomplishing and overcoming his exercising his power towards you. It's him. It's it's all him. And the reason that I think it's so critical we get this is because If we're not careful, there can be this strain of Christianity that sees this. Okay, there is this God whose power knows no end. He is omnipotent. He is with immeasurable power. And then the way that 
pastors get up and preach this. Now it's your job to plug into that power. It, it's your job, right? If you would just believe, if you would just do something, if you would just take the first steps, then you could plug into this power of God. He's just there and he's available and he's willing. But you've got to plug in, dear friends. You, you've heard this kind of preaching. They, they, it makes the power of God. Have you ever seen those um, motorized bicycles where you pedal for a while and then the engine kicks in and you can cruise? It makes the Christian life into something like this. You, you pedal for a while. You take the first steps. You come to him. You do some work and then the power will kick in and it's going to get easy from there. But then on the front end, the first steps to be taken are yours. The first energy to be exercised, the first power that's got to be flexed. It's, it's got to be you. But it seems clear to me that Paul is telling us here, no, from beginning to end, this is all of God. And, and the reason I think that I am so confident in this is, 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 we, is we read the entire context in which Paul is delivering this prayer. You recognize that the chapter and verse markers were not original to Paul's letter. And you realize that the little headings at the top of each at each paragraph or pericope or whatever you come to, that those were not added by Paul in his original writing. This is just a flow of thought, either Paul putting pen to paper or someone else putting pen to paper on on his behalf. But this is the flow of thought, the Holy Spirit working through him. And so what we're going to see here is that Paul is offering up this prayer and he's, he's praying now that we would know again, it's not that we would receive something. It's that we would know it, this power that is already at work toward us. He's praying that we would know it. And then it's almost as though he breaks his thought and, and, and digresses for a minute because it, he goes on to talk about how we see this power. We see it in raising Christ from the dead as God seated him at his right hand above all rule and authority and dominion and power and every name that is named in this age or in the age to come. That's a digression of sorts saying this is how you know the power. This is how you see the power. This is how you comprehend the power. And then he comes right back at the beginning of chapter two to show us. And this is how that power is at work within you. You understand what I'm saying to you? And what does he say at the beginning of chapter two? And you were dead. How much power do dead people have? How much activity can dead people engage in? How many steps? How, how hard can dead people pedal a bike before the power kicks in? You were dead in your sins and trespasses. Oh, you were very much Active, you're following the prince of the power of the air. You thought you were alive, but spiritually, you were dead. You had no power. You were completely passive in the exercise of this power that Paul's talking about right here. Do you understand what I'm saying? But that's the point that he's making before he gets to this. And I don't know how many weeks it's going to take for us to unpack this statement. I, I can't over I can't overstate the. the, the magnitude, the magnificence of this statement that Paul makes about this power and how it is seen in Christ and raising him from the dead. It's going to take us some weeks to un unpack that, but you can't separate you are dead. You're a dead man with no power, with no authority, with no dominion, with no energy, with no ability to exercise. And then this power came upon you. It's all of him from beginning to end, it's all of him. And so he takes us then to, sh to show us. How, how do we know? Because here's the, here's the thing, right? You can't, I, I told you earlier, you can't understand infinity. You just, you can't understand it. We, we, can, we can speak about it. We can, we, we, we can, we've got a symbol for it, I guess, right? I mean, but you don't really understand infinity. And you certainly don't understand infinite Power. We, we don't have the language that can get us there. You've noticed this. As I stumble over my own tongue trying to just give some expression to it. And, and you, can't, you can't even comprehend it. You, you can't even think in those terms because we're finite beings and the finite can never hold the infinite. Even in eternity, even in heaven, we will never fully exhaust the knowledge of the infinite power of God. Always more to learn. Always. So, so God says, well, how then do I express this to these people? How do, I, how do I put a picture behind it? How do I show them what this power is like? Where does he take us? 
to the resurrection and the ascension and the reign of Christ Jesus today. You want to know what this power is like? When, when you start to get sad, when you were a little boy, a little girl, did you look up at the stars and get sad sometimes? Because you felt so tiny and so weak and it was so big. So when you, when you start to feel sad or you, you, your mind can't wrap around a truth like this, you look to the empty tomb. You look to heaven where your Savior is and there you will see the kind of power that I'm talking about, the working of the power of the power of his power. It's seen in that. But why? Why did Paul choose that as the illustration to show us? Because here's the thing. If we're being completely honest and not giving a Sunday school answer. The resurrection and the ascension and the reign of Christ are. They're harder for me to wrap my mind around than creation. Like there's, there's plenty of other times when we see the power of God at, at work. What you, you people know me, you know that I get overwhelmed when we talk about stars and the moon and outer space. I see the power of God, the majesty and creativity of God there. Even the non-believer can look whether they're willing to accept that there is a God or not. And certainly whether they're willing to understand that Christ Jesus is the son of this God. They can't deny the power of quadrillions of stars. Or even for the Christian that believes the Bible, you could look at still raining fire down on cities that were just rife with sin. There's, there's plenty of places where he could have directed our attention that would have been easier for our minds maybe to, to comprehend. Because the reality is that when the stars came into being, there's no denying that. That catches everyone's attention. But when Christ Jesus rose from the dead, Easter Sunday went unnoticed by most of the world. And his reigning in heaven today, I don't see men falling down, the world falling down on their face and saying, I see the power of Christ reigning today. No, they think they're in charge. They're dead men that think they're powerful. So why then would he point to this thing that the rest of the world calls foolishness? You want to know something about the power of God? Look to this thing that the world calls foolish and weak and stupid and silly. Beloved, I, I believe it's because he didn't just want to give us some general idea of the power of God. He wanted us to show us a specific picture, a specific picture tied to what he's doing in us. That the raising of Christ Jesus from the dead, it's the perfect analogy of the way in which the spirit and the power of God has worked in raising you from the dead. That's why he chose this. He's not just wanting you to know that God is powerful. He wants you to know that he's powerful towards you and he wants you to know how he's been powerful towards you as dead men. That the resurrection of Christ Jesus, it's the perfect picture. It's the perfect analogy of your being raised spiritually. And I don't know what to do with this information. Other than to worship. What, what do you do when you come to the realization that it took the same power that God exercised in raising his son from the dead and seating him at his right hand and putting all power and all authorities under him. It took that power to make you Christian. To raise you from spiritual death. Hum humbling, I hope. Changes the way you worship, I hope. And unless you think I'm, I'm stretching or, or making a mountain out of a molehill again, if you pick up his train of thought there, he talks about us being dead in our sins and trespasses in verse five of chapter two. Even when you were dead in your trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and that he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. You think Paul forgot that he just used that same language a couple of verses earlier? Like you think that Paul was sitting there and he's speaking to Timothy or whoever. And they're, they're, writing the, they're writing the letter and he's, and he's saying, seated you up and raised you with him in the heavenly place. And the guy goes, hey, you said that to Jesus earlier. 
You don't you don't mean that same power and that same working and that same might and that same energy, do you? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. That that's what's happened. That just as God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, so he has done with us by that same infinite power of the power of his power. He's done this. And and again, I remind you, he's not praying for this power at this moment. He's not asking God to empower them. He's asking that they would know the thing that already happened. He's saying, would you just recognize the way that God's power has already been manifest in your life and on your behalf to bring you to this place? Do you understand? This isn't just the immeasurable greatness of God's power promising us something someday. That's true, by the way. That's that's absolutely true. True, in Philippians 3, Paul speaks about this. I want to know the power of his resurrection, and I want to be raised again. I look forward to that day. I'm not satisfied with the things of this life, and the reality is I won't be done just floating around in heaven without a body. I long for that glorious and powerful resurrection. That's critical for us to know. That's You think about this. What's he promised to us? An inheritance. How do you get to the inheritance? You die. Well, don't you need to know that he's got the power to walk you through death? To raise you again and to make good on his promises? That's part of the power. That's certainly in view here. Paul hasn't lost sight of the future promise that God would exercise this kind of power. He, he, he longs for that day and Revelation 1.17, this is Christ Jesus, the risen Savior, speaking to John. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and Hades, that death can't conquer Christ Jesus, that he is the first fruits, the promise that he will raise again. But that's not what he's doing here. Again, he's pointing us back to something that's already happened. I just wish you would know this. That's why I'm belaboring a point. That's why I'm beating the dead horse. That's why I won't stop. Because if I'm not, we're not careful. I'll say all this stuff. You'll say, cool story, bro. You'll hit your truck and you'll forget all about it. But he wants you to know it. He wants you to understand it. He wants you to grow in experiential knowledge of this. That it's the same power that God used to raise his son from the dead that he caused you to raise from the dead and believe in him. In, in the parallel to this, in Colossians 2, 12, it says, You were also raised with Christ through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. How have you come to believe? What did we start the book of Ephesians asking? We asked, how does one man believe in Christ? How does one man hear the gospel, repent, believe, and be saved, and another man from the same house, maybe from the same womb, a twin brother kind of deal? How does that man find it to be foolishness and walk away utterly unimpressed? The difference, the power of God. The power of God exercised on behalf of his saints. That's the picture. And you see the foolishness then when we act like there's nothing easier in all the world than to believe. I want you to just believe. All you have to do is believe. And, and, and I mean, it's true that there is no energy. There is no power on your behalf when you, you don't do any of the work. You have nothing to boast in. It is, it is him working in and through you. And so, look, from your perspective, it probably was the easiest thing in the world. For some of you, it may not have been. For some of you, it may have been war. You may have fought and kicked and scratched and clawed against it for decades. But for some of you, it was just as natural as slipping into a warm bath. It just, it just made perfect sense. I saw the truth. Somebody offered me eternal life and I just believed. But blow, you must know that what happened on that day when you believed, whether you were six or you were 60, was more powerful than anything you could ever imagine. It was the power of God. The immeasurable power of God. Scripture speaks about this. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about how it's, it's foolishness and a stumbling block. But to us, it's power and wisdom. That there's power in the word, but that that power, that, excuse me, that word must come with the power of God for anything to happen. How often do I talk to you about it like I'm trying to make a campfire here and I'm, 
I'm laying out the wood and I'm putting the kindling and I'm, I'm sowing the seed and I'm doing all this stuff. But if the fire doesn't come from heaven, nothing happens. I'm preaching to dead men. That, that's why Paul is able to rejoice with the church in Thessalonica. He says, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. People ask us, we talk about election and predestination and being chosen by God. And people get all bound up. How can I know? How can I know? How can, how can I know that God has chosen me? Well, Paul tells us right here. How can you know? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Beloved, it takes God to make a Christian. It takes the immeasurable greatness of the power of God to make a Christian. Are you a Christian? Then he chose you. And he exercised this power on your behalf, breaking down all resistance. Exercising all dominion. <laughs> You're a miracle. How, how could we ever come in here and just... Sing some pretty songs. How could you not be jacked up about worship? How, how could you not cherish your faith and your salvation? How could you not tell others? If you find this incredible, and many do, you, you find this incredible, this understanding of what God has done in salvation. I would submit to you that perhaps you don't recognize the power of what once held you. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And we've made this caricature, this cartoon of the devil. And Bugs Bunny did us no favors with regards. We made him into a clown, a court gesture, 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 gesture. We've, we've made him in, into a thing that we can just, just flip away as if he were nothing. But that's not the way scripture speaks of him. Powerful angel, a, a roaring lion prowling, seeking someone to devour. One who has the power of death and uses that power to keep men enslaved in fear. He, he's an accuser and, and a liar and a deceiver and a, and a murderer. Beloved, you need to understand that Satan is way stronger and way smarter than you will ever be. He, he was, he was, he, he knew the scripture more than, he, more than you did. By the time you showed up, he had been studying humanity for 6,000 years. He had 6,000 years of practice in deceiving and leading astray men. You get 80 years, 100 years. So I, I don't think we fully comprehend power and the, and the craftiness and the scheming of this one that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that he has blinded the eyes of the non-believers, that they can't even see the glory of God. You can't behold the thing that you're called to want. But beyond this, the power of our own flesh, the power, what it means to be fallen. Again, what does Paul talk about it? He says you're dead. He says you're dead. Elsewhere, he says that we're slaves to sin. He's not the only one that says this. Jesus says that those who sin, you're a slave to sin. Talking about this kind of blindness and, 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 and stupidity, he says that the natural man, that he, he can't receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're, they're foolishness to, to him. And he can't understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So you've got man that's just completely incapable. He's dead. He's blind. He's enslaved. He's got a real enemy working to keep him there. You can't break free from this kind of thing. You couldn't even want to break free. You see, lest you look at this man that's enslaved and go, oh, bless his heart. I mean, how can you help it? You're born in sin. You're brought forth in iniquity. I remind you, this is a moral inability. You're hostile to God. That's what Romans 8, 7, the mind that is set on the flesh. It's hostile to God. For it does not submit to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Or what did... What does John tell us? John 3.16, he says that, 3.19, excuse me. He says that this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than light. It's a question of affections and desires. Are you a slave to Satan and to sin and to death and to fear? Yes. Do you love that slavery? Yes. You call it freedom. 
You love the darkness rather than the light. You run to the darkness rather than the light because your heart, what did Jeremiah say? It's, it's deceitful. It's, there's one translation that says it's incurably sick. You don't need a cure. Do you understand? There's not a shot, an immunization, a, a surgery. You need a new heart. That one's incurable. That one's dead. There's no bringing it back. We don't need a resuscitation. We've got to be something new. Doesn't that sound like biblical language? A new creation. A new creation. One of my favorite pastors to listen to right now is a man called Derek Thomas. And I was listening to some things that he had to say about this text. And he says, do you recognize that the thing that has to happen to you for you to become a Christian, for you to be a Christian, for you to believe in Christ Jesus and to walk out this life following him as Lord. It's got to be as radical as the change that happened when Christ went from being a corpse to the glorified risen Savior. You don't need some tweaks around the edges. You're putrid and disgusting and stinky and dead. And you need the power of God to come and make you something altogether new. That's what we're doing when we evangelize. You realize this. Do you realize what you're, what you're praying for? I, I pray for, for you, but I pray particularly. You, you know this for your children, for the salvation of our children. I, look, for some of you, I don't know how many years you got left, but these kids are a little bitty. I, I feel like I got some more time to pray over them. God, save them. Would you save them? Would you save them? But you understand what I'm saying is not God, help them to be in a good mood the day Miss Heidi delivers the gospel. I, I'm not saying... God, give their parents the right words to convince them. Or, or, or God, help me to be cool and convincing and, and to connect with them so that they can, they can hear me. I'm, I'm not saying, God, let them hit rock bottom and make some choice for themselves. I'm not saying, God, make them afraid of hell. What am I saying? God, make them new because they stink. Do a miracle, God, please. Do something supernatural, please. And I'm short on time here, but the reason that Paul, I'm, I'm, the reason he wants us to see this, why, why does he care that we know? Why does it matter that we know that, right? Why does it matter that we know that? What difference does it make for me today? Great, great, great. The power of God. It was, it's a miracle that I'm a believer. Okay, sweet. So what? Why does this kind of theology matter? Why? What difference does it make if I pedaled the bike for a bit and he kicked in or if he overcame all things through his immeasurable greatness of his power? Beloved, it's because that same power is the one that will sustain you all the way to the end. He doesn't just give you a jolt of power. Remember, this isn't just him giving you some power. This is his power to usward, toward us and in us and for us. And it's not that they just need a start, right? It's not your daddy teaching you to ride a bike and he just gives you a nice little push. And now you better pedal harder. You're going to fall over. That's not the picture at all. It's that this is the same power that sustains you. That's what he says in Ephesians 3.20, that he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power, excuse me, according to the power at work within us. Psalm 73.26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Your strength will fail. Your faith will get weak. The road ahead will get too hard. And at no point does your power be the one that kicks in. It's always his power working in and through you. Does it feel like effort? Yes, you'll go to bed exhausted. But that's the power at work. And if you don't know that that power is hard, how can I have any assurance that that power is going to be there? How can I know that he's really working in me like this? How can I be sure that he's not going to let loose of me before the end? How can I be sure the devil isn't going to come back and get the upper hand? How can I be sure that my sins haven't somehow thwarted his plan? He says, look back to the fact that you're a Christian. I've already exercised my power towards you in ways that you can't even fathom. That's why Paul's able to live the way that he lives. Again, going back to Philippians 3, that's, I mean, the whole of Philippians is 
magnificent, but he's, he's talking about the, the way he's able to live and the way he's able to walk and the way he's able to just write off everything that he once counted as dear in his life and the way that he's able to suffer. You, you remember in his second letter to Timothy, he lists all the people that have failed him. Some people that just went away on other missions. Some people turned their back and opposed him and had done wicked things. He says, but God strengthened me. So he, he, he knew something of the power of God. And I want you to think about his own conversion. On the road to Damascus. As opposed to God as any man could be while thinking he was for God. Persecuting Christ in the persecution of the church. And what happened? Did God make an invitation? He overwhelmed him. The power of the power of his power blinded him on that day. He said, I have chosen and I have called you. He knew something about the power of God in conversion. And because he knew about the power of God in conversion, because he knew about the power of God in calling him to life and bringing him to faith, because of that, he's able to say things like this, Philippians 3, 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's, he's saying to a different church now, the thing I'm praying for over there, I've known it and I've experienced it and I've tasted it and I've seen it. And so now I count all that as loss. For his sake, I don't just count it as loss. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. What's the word in Greek? It's onomatopoeic kind of word, right? It's, it's, it, it sounds like dung and it is. I'll look it up and tell you next week. It's a beautiful, beautiful word. It says I count it all as dung at this point because I've known the power of God. That may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, I want to know the power of God and his resurrection. Now, I don't, I don't want to, not just that I want to experience that. He doesn't even just point forward to the promise of his own resurrection, which is there as well. Becoming like him in his death that I might rise again. He doesn't stop there. He says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. If you've been around this church for more than a cup of coffee... We talk about pain a lot, don't we? And if you're a visitor here and you think, man, do these people just have the worst life ever? No, we've got the happiest life ever. But Scripture tells us that when one of us hurts, the whole hurts. The whole of it. We all hurt. The whole body. When a finger hurts, the whole body hurts. And we got 200 of us and somebody's always hurting. And so we mourn and we weep and we are sorrowful alongside them. We know something about suffering. That's the beauty. You will have your heart. You join this church, you will have your heart ripped out in the best kind of way. So we know something about suffering and we know that everyone suffers, believers or non-believers. The choices are, do you suffer with Christ? Do you suffer for the name of Christ? He's saying, I long for that because I know that even in that suffering, I taste something of his power. And I can trust that that power won't leave me because I saw it on the road and I've experienced it in my life. And I'm a Christian. I'm a walking miracle. I've known and seen the power of God. That's, that's the picture. Going back to the parallel, Colossians 1.10. He's praying that they would increase in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy. How many times have I told you, you don't have to tell me to endure a nap. You endure things that are hard. You endure things that are challenging. You don't have to tell me to exercise patience when I'm in Disney World. It's endurance and it's patience, but it comes with joy. That you can experience joy, real joy in the middle of suffering. If you recognize the power of God that's already at work within you today. And you need look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. His resurrection, his ascension. How do I know that power has come to me? Because I'm Christian. Because I believe. <laughs> Father God, we praise you.
and we thank you. And we long to see and know more of this power. We believe your word. We, I, we, there's not a person here. I am maybe somebody. But I don't think there's a person here that's thinking, yeah, that, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. God's not powerful like that. And God has not exercised that kind of power, nor would he towards me. But the question is, do we keep it in view? And do we delight in it? And do we walk forward through real fiery struggles, counting them as light and momentary, trusting that in that you're preparing for us an immeasurable weight of eternal glory? Father, we long for that day. We ask you to change us now to walk in light of it. We love you and we thank you. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.